This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hello and welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and today I'm sharing a conversation with Miranda McPherson. I came to Miranda's work through Mirabai Star, and I was delighted to get a chance to talk with her and hear her story. It's quite profound. Um, she shares her story of awakening and then the integration of that and how that that has manifested in her life over time since being a young girl and a teenager uh, up until now. We get into some interesting uh, talking about grace and about personal limitations and about, you know, how to be in touch with the deepest part of ourselves as uh, the awakening itself is unfolding within us and, and around us in our, in our world. So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation and, and get a lot out of it. Please do remember to subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes and go to BeHereNowNetwork.com where you can make a one-time or reoccurring uh, tax-deductible donation to support the Shakti Hour and all the offerings from the Be Here Now Network. I also have a Patreon page specifically for the Shakti Hour where you can subscribe and follow to receive special monthly rewards and also uh, special content reflections, meditations, and writings surrounding the Shakti Hour. Also, stay tuned. I'm starting a Shakti Hour book club that will feature the books from many of the guests on the Shakti Hour, and I'd love to have you join in on that. I'll keep you posted as to when that is launched. And thanks so much for listening. So I'm delighted to be here this afternoon with Miranda McPherson and uh, it's our first time meeting and uh, a mutual friend of ours, Mirabai Star, turned me on to your work and sent me to you and um, and I just would love for you, I know you have a, you have quite a origin story, but I would love for you to share a little bit with the guests because it's, it's a, it's a beautiful arc that has woven you to where you've come today on your spiritual path. So could you give us just a little taste of that at, here at the beginning? Yeah, sure. Well, I remember being a young child and always knowing that there was more to life, that there was something that wasn't being talked about that I kind of intuitively felt. I remember being very little and having just these natural moments of just knowing I was one with the sea and sky and, being able to sort of feel and sense things that weren't necessarily happening in the physical realm. Um, but I grew up in a pretty secular family, you know, who had good values, good moral values, but their reality was what you can see and hear with your physical senses was all there is. And I always knew, no, there's more. So I think I came in naturally with a lot of openness as a soul, but like every human being, 
I had a big falling from grace, as we all do, in the process of the mud starting to cover the jewel of our being through the process of conditioning and forming a personality. And so I was no different than everybody else. And I remember by the age of about 12, 13, I started to sort of something, I felt like I'd lost something. And I didn't know what, I didn't have language for it. And there were a few too many difficulties in my life then as a young one. And I remember snapping inside and withdrawing very deeply into a very depressed, cut-off state. And, you know, I, I'm feeling a lot, as we all do when we're young people, we feel everything but don't necessarily have the language. And cutting a long story short, you know, I, I descended into a very cut-off, difficult place, and I was eventually hospitalized for depression. And I was hospitalized in an adult psychiatric unit by my choice. I was given the choice of adult or child, and I don't know why, but I chose adult. And I think why was that I was hungry for a deeper conversation about what really mattered. And I didn't know how to have that conversation or who I could have that conversation with. But bottom line is I was, you know, for several months in this adult psych unit and in that environment, I was sort of in a, in this sort of pot, this cauldron of different faces of human suffering. And there's nothing like really being up close and personal with human suffering, whether that has the label of depression, drug addiction, you know, mental health issues of every kind of label, to start really asking those questions that I think at some point in life, hopefully, we start asking, which is, who am I and what's this all about? You know, how do I live a real life? How can I live, really? And, I mean, I wasn't asking those questions out loud because I'd withdrawn so much inside of myself, but I was actually asking them internally. I, I knew I couldn't live in this sort of cut-off state and you know, I couldn't really find hope or truth or anything meaningful. And eventually, in my sort of darkest moment there, I started praying. And I started praying, you know, not to some idea of a God, because I, I quite fortunately, I didn't have anything shoved down my throat as a child. I know I was raised in a kind of a kind of a vaguely Christian culture, but you know, there was no talk of God, really. So why I would pray is kind of mysterious. But my prayer wasn't a very enlightened prayer, but it was sincere. It was, dear God, I'm done. Like, take me out. I don't want to be here anymore. And I think I exhausted myself in that prayer. And, you know, sometimes when we exhaust ourselves in our resistance, there's nothing but surrender to have happen and so there was a surrender by exhaustion <laughs> that took place. And in that surrender, what was what came alive was an experience of boundless love. And it was very powerful. It was it felt as if just this golden light had exploded from within my heart. And for the first time in a very long time I felt connected. I felt plugged in to the mains of something that I'd always really known, or I'd known when I was very young, but that I'd lost. And in that experience, I knew that was the truth of my nature. I knew that was the truth of everyone's nature. I knew this was the truth of us all. And I could feel that it was like this kind of river of, of grace, really, that was underlying everything, this goodness. And it was very clear to me as a 13-year-old then that the whole meaning and purpose of life was to remove the obstacles somehow so that we could live this. And so while that didn't mean I was enlightened, <laughs> you know, it was a very powerful, transformative inner experience. And it gave me the strength to say inwardly, okay, I can do life now. I can live. I can be here. And I can be here with some kind of positivity and optimism and goodness. Because I knew without question that I was in touch with something that was real with a capital R. Only I knew intuitively don't talk about this until you're an adult. 
And so it's a good thing I didn't open my mouth because I probably would never have been, um, uh, I probably would, would never have been discharged from the psychiatric unit had I spoke about this. But it gave me the inner strength to go right back into the situations that had triggered that difficulty, you know, difficulties at home, difficulties at school, you know, they were, the challenges, the triggers didn't go away. If anything, they got worse. But inside I knew I was connected and part of something that was real and true. It gave me meaning and strength and hope and joy. And so that put me on the path. And it put me on this path to study and learn anything I could that was somehow speaking about this. And so because I lived in Perth, Western Australia, and this was, you know, the early 1980s, what I found really was a theosophical society where I could go and read books that were Gurdjieff. I read, you know, Blavatsky. I, but the things that I loved more that really touched my heart were coming out of India were things like Ramakrishna and Vivekananda and Ananda Mahima. And um, something about that just struck such a chord of love and devotion within my heart. And so it's natural in a way that I gravitated towards Eastern teachings, Sufi teachings. That's just where I was led. And um, But one of the things that I noticed as I got older and I was able to start going to you know, to, to learn meditation and to learn yoga and to sit with those who are older and wiser wherever I could find them, was that I had kind of an easy openness to very expanded states. I could really go there, but what was clear to me was that I needed help to sort of live that, you know, so I started to see pretty early on that psychological work was essential parallel to spiritual work and in I recognize it in myself that it isn't enough just to pray and meditate you have to remove the casings you know liberate the blocks and that actually the more meditation and esoteric practice I did the more it seemed to put pressure on these you know fears and neuroses and self-hatred that really needed attention so, you know, I started studying, you know, transformational methodologies like that as well. And, um, you know, I entered seminary in New York City where I, I trained to become an interfaith minister and spiritual counselor. And, um, and that was beautiful to really study, you know, all the things that I really wanted to study, to really study scriptures of different traditions and open to what do these great wisdom streams have to offer us on how we transform, how we can live a real meaningful life. But always it, it wasn't enough for me just to transcend. I wanted to know, you know, how we could live love and truth in our intimate relationships, you know, how we could go about our ordinary lives from a more centered, unified wholesome embodied place so i just want to jump in here because from being a child I, i'm getting this beautiful image as you're telling the story of almost like this little ball of light <laughs> that you've been kind of you were carrying around in this really precious kind of secret way <laughs> and taking it and then and taking it to these different uh, traditions and these different places and seeing, you know, how can I begin to reveal this? But yes. what really strikes me is that you knew that young and that the, the psychiatric... Uh, breakdown I don't mm -hmm. know if it took took you back to it mm -hmm. and now and now it's leading you into this place where you see um, the brighter and brighter that light shines or the more that that is illuminated is allowed to expand it's showing you the intricate web of distortion 
That's right. Around yeah. it. Well, yes. Once we have some experience of deeper reality or God or truth, you know, firstly what it does is it plugs us in to, you know, to what it is that we've been kind of intuitively yearning for but without even really knowing it. But secondly then what it does is it shines a light on all the places where we're caught up in fear, in difficult history, in, you know, patterns of mind. And that's what's supposed to be happening. And I, I share how that was for me just because, you know, I see so many people on the path who have had a moment of spiritual awakening. And then often when they can't live into that, they can't hold on to it, they, you know, they use it as a weapon against themselves that they're doing something wrong. And so I, I share all of this because what I've actually come to see, no, this is what's supposed to be happening. You know, once we have a taste of something real, it will expose all the things that are in the way of that embodying itself. And so we have to just practice with that. Go, okay, here's my material. Here are my deck of cards. I like to call karma your deck of cards. You know, we all have it. We all have things we've inherited from our ancestors that are buried in our conscious. We all have fears and habits of control and defenses and hurts that need to unravel and be integrated we have limitations just based on what we haven't understood yet. And the work really ongoingly is letting that all come up to the light and letting it be met with love. And so one of the things that, you know, even it says that in the Bible and you know, St. Paul said it, that everything exposed to the light itself becomes light. And so that's, that's so much of what I understood you know, even before a whole other level of awakening had happened. And so in my 20s, and I, I just want to follow yeah. up on that. What you said there was so beautiful. Limitations based on what we don't understand yet. Yes. And that's so loving. That's such a loving uh, way to nurture yourself through that process. That limitation is there out of ignorance. Yes, out of ignorance. And ignorance is just we're ignoring something. We're not conscious of something yet. And one of the things that I, I see that is so clear to me is that we have to meet all of that, our egoic material, with and from love. Because in the same way that the sun's rays, the warmth of the sun's rays, will naturally melt that hard, dense block of ice and transform it back into its origin, which is just fluid, clear water, um, it's much more effective than trying to hack away at it, like taking an, an axe to the ice, which is, I think, and then perhaps this is part of a further conversation we'll get to later, that most spiritual traditions up until very recently have been given through the male lens only. And so I think part of the tendency has been to have this kind of more macho way of approaching our egoic material that everybody has. Our ignorance, our fears, our history, our patterning, you know, our self-centeredness, our anger, our reactivity, the things that limit us. We do, we do need to let them be transformed, but the issue is how. And so, well, and on your journey here, I'll bring you back to the journey where you're, you were mm -hmm. just getting into the interface seminary. Mm -hmm. There... You are using, or you had been using the structures that were in place to move yourself along the path. Yes, I was working very hard because I was so aware that, you know, the more I meditated, the more I looked into my soul, the more I looked at my own consciousness, the more it was very obvious to me there's a very big gap between these moments of deeply realizing our nature as boundless love, which was the big realization that I'd had, which was a very deep and powerful experience. So once you've tasted that, it starts to expose all the things that aren't that. And so what I noticed while I was really using the study of the great wisdom traditions and some of their transformative practices was how much I needed help, <laughs> how much I needed 
forgiveness. I need how much I needed to forgive myself, how much I needed kindness, you know, so that I could relax that tendency to judge and, and hate the things that felt so frustrating and limited and the places where I would just habitually start acting in that same old defensive, reactive way that I so wanted not to have to do. And everybody who is sincere on the path knows what I'm talking about. You know, when we come up against our own limitations, it can feel so disappointing. Here I am, I'm still caught in that insecurity. I'm still caught in envy. I'm still caught in anger. What's it going to take? you know, to let go of this, to truly have this reactivity be in my past. And so I was very sincere and for most of those years in my 20s and up until my mid-30s, my primary practice was meditation and prayer. I was very devotional by nature and I was also working very diligently through the workbook lessons of A Course in Miracles, which I found so helpful um, particularly because the shape of my personality had a lot of judgment and self-hatred in it. And so the emphasis on forgiveness was really good medicine for me. I think it is for everybody, but for me particularly it was. But what I realized looking back on that time is that even in those years where there was so much devotion and sincerity and in those years I I was also running an interface seminary that my teacher asked me to found in England. And I was training and ordaining other spiritual counselors and ministers. There was still subtly this belief in there that I needed to fix myself, that I needed to somehow get past um, what seemed to be this problem called me. And so this whole other level of realization occurred in my mid-30s on one of many pilgrimages to India. At this time, it was a pilgrimage to the ashram of Sri Ramana Maharshi, who many listeners will have heard about. And I was meditating in his cave, one of the two caves that he'd lived in before many Westerns knew about him. And for once, I sat down on a dusty old cushion in his cave. And unlike many other moments I had sat in meditation, by grace, that time, I wasn't seeking to get anywhere. I wasn't seeking to get anything back. I wasn't seeking to fix myself. I was just happy to sit and be quiet. And a, a whole other level of grace opened up that day in, in the cave that I really only knew about conceptually, but I hadn't really tasted. It was a transmission of absolute silence that spoke these words, be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, become nothing, seek for nothing, relinquish nothing, be as you are, rest in God. This transmission really changed my center of gravity, changed my life. I was silenced completely into a whole other level of, of boundless absolute being that was total silence. And it lasted, the state lasted for three weeks. And then when the state shifted, even though the state shifted to more ordinary experience, there was something that didn't shift. And I heard intuitively in that moment, now integrated. And so similar to what I was saying, the integration process took several years. It called for total surrender of all the structures that had held my familiar identity in place. And so there was so much kind of stripping back and in the process of that, really learning what what that transmission actually meant in terms of day-to-day -day life. And what it brought forth was a whole other body of teaching and understanding on, on how we can really live and be what we really are 
beyond the search to get anywhere. So this is so beautiful. I mean, I just love this arc of this story. And I have two things come up for me with it is, um, well, three, really. (laughs) But one is this, you know, your intention, what was your intention all the way up until this time? So you made it clear that when you when you made it into this cave by grace, you were just happy to sit. But yes, up until then, what was the uh, what was what was the intention? What was the motivation? Yeah, up until then, I call it you know um, BC before the cave, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the years of practice before the cave. Yeah, my intention was you, you know was to wake up fully and to to really live from God consciousness, but. It, it, there was a felt sense in that that there was something that I had to get to or something that I had to get past, that I had to somehow triumph over my ego. And I knew my ego pretty well, its patterns, its defenses, its limitations, its reactions. I had, had to somehow get past that. So I had been so The intention is in alignment with the actual result. That, well, I know, but what's subtle about it yeah. is that... You know, when we're trying to push past or get past our ego, when we're viewing our ego as some problematic thing, it's very subtle. There's a spiritual search to amputate. There's a belief, it's subtle, that we need to somehow amputate or get rid of something. And what I started to understand is, no, it's a matter of ego relaxation, not ego annihilation. And that's a very profound and important shift because what it does is it helps us to really see even our ego from a deeper non-dual understanding. For example, you know, all great traditions agree that if we, if we were to liken our ego with its patterns and defenses and fears and history, concerns, reactions, as like a hard block of ice, Right? A hard block of ice is dense, it's opaque, it's fixed, it's fixated. Right? And, of course, that creates a density in our consciousness that limits the full possibility. So everyone agrees, yes, we need to somehow break this down. But let's not forget that a hard block of ice is still water. It's still water, even though it's frozen, dense, opaque, fixed. Its fundamental substance is always that what that it is. It's, it's always water. And so what I understood in the wake of this deep life-changing realization was this ego that I thought, this personhood that I thought was such a problem that needed to be fixed and broken down, the very nature of that ultimately is still the divine. It can't be anything else. So the issue was, how can it best melt? And what I started to see that was such a beautiful integration of the realization of boundless love that set me on the path was the most effective way of breaking down this hard, dense fixatedness is love. Because love's presence is that a presence that is powerful because it melts. It melts and opens that which it touches. Just consider, you know, when you feel you walk into a room and someone loves you, and that's really obvious, we naturally melt and soften and open. And of course, that's what has to happen. Our ego has to relax, it has to melt, it has to soften, it has to open. And when anything egoic is met with love, it just, there's a natural melting that takes place. And we also naturally develop compassion. We naturally are forgiving. But at the same time, we're not going to let the consciousness of a five-year-old, which is what our ego really is, is you know, defenses and patterns we learn from age zero to five. We're not going to let a five-year-old run our life. So speak to me a little bit about this, the two, the, the, 
the time that the state maintained, mm-hmm. what that experience was like. And then the other point I wanted to touch on is that the integration you're saying took like two years. So those well, are two little chunks of time that I, I'd yes. love to, to address a little bit further. Sure, yeah. So what was the first part again? Oh, yeah, in the three weeks. Yeah, what was that, that sustained state like? Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, I really can't accurately put words to it. It was, it was so simple. It was so direct. There was such a isness. What was so beautiful was it was so peaceful. It was so quiet, even though the world continued to go on. You know, the world was sort of noisy and doing everything. And I was in India at the time for some of this time and traveling back to London where I was living then. And um, so all the things that had bothered me, like seeing heaps of rubbish and plastic bottles sort of just, you know, dumped in the street, was really upsetting to me prior to that, this realization. Everything was just fine. Everything was just totally fine the way it was. And I remember, you know, just sitting there, you know, and just noticing ants, you know, doing what ants do in a line. And everything was just beautiful and wondrous. Everything was just perfect the way it was. There was no need to alter or resist anything. There was just no commentary because there was no I to commentate or no nothing to resist. You see, when your central construct of a separate someone who thinks it needs to commentate and rearrange itself or life disappears, when there isn't that anymore, there's no resistance. There's no... Something that we experience in meditation sometimes or in a spiritual practice, we have moments of that. I have come to see over the years that what the Christian mystics called unitive experience or non-dual experience, which is where the sense of subject, object, even me and a God, me and anything, the sense of me disappears and there's just the unity. That can be tasted in many different flavors. It can be tasted as boundless love. It can be tasted as absolute silence. It can be tasted as pure awareness, pure omniscience, pure presence, right? There's a lot of ways that it can along. It's actually very natural. But most people, you know, don't necessarily know it. They're just feeling very peaceful and at one with everything. But, it, you know, sometimes that can happen in meditation, but oftentimes that can happen spontaneously in nature. Or it can happen at the deathbed of someone or at the birth of someone. You know, there's these moments in life where the veils just fall away. And often so we're not were even having this experience and it was ongoing. Yes. And when you're telling this story, I'm having a, my own personal moment of, of wondering when the end of it, when, mm-hmm. when is it going to shift back? And so, mm-hmm. so what was that experience like for you? And, and when did it move yeah. into the next phase? It moved. I was back in London and I was teaching a class. I was run a spiritual director of a, the first ever interfaith seminary training in, in England and Europe. And um, there was a particularly difficult knot in the group dynamic that was, you know, would arise every now and again. And here it was, and I was in the teacher's seat. And it felt like I, I was the vastness, and it was crunched through a very tight hole. <laughs> you know, like when we might get a children's sort of square block punched through a round hole and there's that kind of there was that kind of crunchy pounding kind of feeling um but there was acceptance and i'm very grateful for that i'd had enough experience on the path to know that it's not about clinging to any state that true realization isn't isn't just always being in a state of bliss all the time it's so because that you say that because that you you were given this experience when you had had enough experience yes, to know right. that this the yeah yes exactly and so all these decades you know these years of study 
before that cave awakening were so beautiful because they, they, they just had certain wisdom. I, I had an understanding already. It's not about clinging to a state. And so there was capacity in that moment to hear that intuitive voice. It felt like the same voice that came online in the cave. Say, so now integrate it. And my heart knew, yes, you know, whatever is realized has to be integrated. And integration usually takes time. It doesn't happen instantaneously. States of grace can happen instantaneously all the time. But actualizing them is a much lengthier, nuanced, subtle, ongoing process. Yeah, and what can you tell us about that experience for you? Yeah, well, it was, it was a powerful time. I mean, after that, I mean, all these changes started happening in my life. You know, all the structures of my life started to fall down without me really having much say in it, and I wasn't trying to bring about changes, but my marriage of 13 years started coming to a close, and it had been a good marriage, and we weren't fighting, but it was this sense that something had really been changed inside, and um, with that marriage going, I knew that the, everything was going to change, and I could feel that starting to happen. I could feel that my work as sort of director of this interface seminary that I'd birthed and that was really my first baby and was a very powerful attachment, that my work there was done, that it, it had now to be led by others, that I had other work to do. Um, and I knew that the country I had been living in was not my home anymore, that it was time to go to America. There's just this feeling of this is no longer your life. This is no longer your home. This is no longer your country. And so it involved a letting go of everything familiar, and that took a lot of courage. And again, it's where my years of study and practice really were very supportive because inevitably there were moments where I was accepting and peaceful and it was all totally okay that this was happening. And then there were, any, there were other moments, usually in the middle of the night, where I'd wake up in terror, you know, like just like any other person going through, you know, divorce, you know, loss and huge changes all at once. Um, and so I would meditate through the night because I couldn't sleep. And so much clarity and guidance came through in those meditations in the middle of the night, as often they can in extreme situations if we open to them. And so I knew in that kind of, you know, first sort of nine months after that awakening in the cave, when everything was starting to come down, was that, you know, the ask was just to say yes, just to allow the letting go of everything familiar. And that, that felt like being asked to just voluntarily step into the void with no idea of what's on the other side or even if there is another side. And can and you so, speak about what the what your will was like in that time? So, yes, well, very willing actually. Uh, my my will there was tremendous willingness because it was obvious to me. I mean, one in one meditation in the middle of the night, I remember praying, "Show me what this is really for, so I can say yes." I wanted help understanding what was really going on, and you know. In that meditation, in the quiet, it must have been about 3 a.m., the same voice that spoke in the cave asked me questions. And those questions were, who are you questions. And it was challenging me on every single attachment I have. So for me, that was, who are you without this marriage? Who are you without this home? Who are you without this country? Who are you without your social standing, who are you without your role as teacher, who are you without your community, who are you, I mean, it went on, you can imagine, if you were asked in the middle of the night, you know, you listed every single attachment you have, you know, and then lastly, I was asked, and who are you without Miranda, and so I was journaling this, and as I got to the M of my name, in who are you without Miranda, the pen ran out, And of course, in that moment, yeah. it was like this, my whole body just shook because I realized, oh. oh, okay. 
thank you, Ramana. And really that that's what's asked in the end of all of us is can we let go of everything we think we are, everything that we, we've been using to reify our sense of meaning, you know, anything we've been using to say I'm a this or I'm a that, I'm a good person, I'm a this kind of a person, anything, and it can be very subtle. And so it felt like this great hand sweeping across the chessboard of my life and then ripping up the chessboard. And you asked a question about my will. Well, it was about saying, okay, okay, yes, okay. Knowing that it would take everything. And it did. But the, so the so, will was in, uh, aligned with your original intention. That's right. And so again, this is why... You know, I don't just tell the story of, you know, I just happened to be in Ramana's cave and had this awakening and that's that. Because I think it does a disservice to genuine seekers on the path because, you know, nothing goes to waste. Any sincere spiritual practice is useful. It's all good. It's all necessary. It all will serve us in some way that we might not even understand at the time. And I think too often awakening is presented as if someone just by grace has some huge experience and then they're done. And I, I don't think that's true. Well, I you think know, I'm honestly curious. Too. Well, absolutely. And that's the, that's the piece that I really am struck by in your experience. In, and I even wonder if awakening is what people want these days or that's their intention. Mm -hmm. That was clearly your intention. Very to, clearly, yes. So... But so many people are engaging in different spiritual practices, maybe just to sleep better or yes, maybe right. to try and improve their relationship. Or, right. Well, and, I think most of us get on the path because we're suffering in some way. However, we're experiencing that suffering, whether it feels to be relational or physiological or stress-based. Or something, something deeper, that, that feeling of the gap that you were yeah, having. Right, yeah. but, but I think, you know, if we look a little deeper, you know, firstly, it's understandable that we usually get on the path because we're suffering and we're seeking some resolution to our suffering. But once we bite down on any sincere practice or teaching, it starts, it does help us to see that the real cause of our suffering isn't just that we're, we're not sleeping better. We start to go, well, why am I not sleeping better? Why are my relationships so conflictual and difficult? What's that really about? And we start to see what Buddha called, you know, dukkha, which is, it's translated as suffering, but what it really means when taken from the Pali is out of joint with ourself. We're out of joint with ourself in some way. And that being out of joint with ourself, meaning is that somehow we, we've lost touch with primordial love as part of what we are. We've lost touch with peace. We've lost touch with the joy of our being. These, these qualities are a part of what we actually fundamentally are, but we don't feel that necessarily. We feel we have to do something to get peace. We have to become someone to get back to love. We have to somehow rearrange ourselves. But the only real solution is coming home. And that coming home is a big journey, and it's the perennial heroes or heroine's journey that must be taken, really, if we are to truly be at peace, be happy, and lead a beautiful life. And most importantly, have our neurotic concerns and habits freed up so that our primary life force can be used in beautiful ways that heal and serve. Right. Uh, our teacher Ramdas says we're all just walking each other home. Yes, I believe that. And so now this is the integration then. What would you offer to someone who's stepping between or feels like they're stepping between this, the psychological mm -hmm. world and the spiritual awakening? Well, firstly, the psychological unpacking and the spiritual awakening are not two things. So I really want to bust that myth that you have to 
awakening means, you know, you don't have to deal with your psychological stuff. You're going to have to deal with your psychological stuff at a whole other level because the deeper your realization goes, the more it's going to unearth about your patterns of mind and what are your patterns of mind but your personal psychology, the ways that you get caught in some strategy to offset the difficulty of feeling out of joint with yourself. And, of course, these are all learned and laid down in patterns when we're very young. So I don't think of that as something we have to get over. I think of that as a continued part of the path. And, in fact, that's what revealed itself to me. You know, I moved to America and I didn't know a soul and I was really living off the guidance that was was very, very clear and crisp in my own experience. And I was really wanting to not make any decisions based on ego or fear. I wanted to live in this truth that had come alive. And so it meant living out of a prayer, what's needed now. And so I learned to train myself. Just a, that's so beautiful. I'm, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but there's so many wonderful points I just I want to highlight. Mm-hmm. The what's needed now, can you describe maybe how, how that yes. would work for you on in the well, flow of your you- day? Yes, all the time. So firstly, I trained myself to not reference the mind for any decision, to not think my way through, right? When you even understand how limited ordinary thinking is, how it's based on perceptions that you learned about reality when you're very young, you see that it's good for learning times tables and grammar and basic activities, but it's not what's going to be able to help you live truth. And so we have to live out of a deeper prayer. My prayer was what's needed now. So, for example, there were big things. I mean, you can imagine trying to move from the UK to America, um, deal with immigration, somehow find a way to get legal. Um, And I was engaging, okay, it's huge. It was bigger than, than I knew how to deal with. So I would pray, okay, what's needed now, and listen, and, and then something would just come forth, or contact a lawyer, or do this, and so I would do that. And, you know, but even this day, um, it's so natural. When there's a bunch of tasks, there's a backlog of things that need to be done, what's needed now, what's the priority, and so train myself to live in that kind of spiritual obedience. And at that time in my life, when I was transitioning from the UK to the United States, and there was, you know, I'd really been sort of taken apart egoically, it was a wonderful opportunity to practice that, because why would I want to reconstitute my former identity just to function? That didn't feel so useful. It's tempting, especially in in times of challenge and stress, to grab onto old behaviors and ways of being so mm. that that question is such a gentle loving kind of nudge back into that intuitive deeper to be, self to be present yeah to be open to not presume i know or even i should not know and so in all of this i started to see it was again all the study of, of the wisdom tradition started to sort of kind of come fresh in a new way and the whole body of teachings unfolded that I now call the pillars of awakening that were virtues basically that all the great traditions agree are important and they started showing up as well the first of the pillars is for example we need trust in order to really integrate a realization and to live it and embody it we need to trust not our ordinary mind but we need to trust the loving goodness that that the pulse of the underlying pulse of life is goodness, is lovingness. And so we need to trust that, stay in touch with it, right? We also need love of the truth. We need to be devoted to the truth itself, not as some principle, but as ongoing revelation. And that when we're devoted to the truth, that offsets the tendency that all egos have to kind of skirt around things, to be a little self-perceptive, to to betray oneself. We need the virtue of curiosity to help us to stay open, to not just sort of rest on fixed positions or presumptions, 
we need non-attack. You know, we need the deep compassion that helps us to forgive, you know, when the ego reconstitutes or when that kind of inner commentary that many teachers call the inner critic pipes up. I love how you said that, the ego reconstitutes with the water analogy. That's really... So really it does, re- and it does reconstitute very easily. So you know, okay. So that's where we need that commitment to to non-attack. And often, what we don't see is that inner critic, that voice of inner commentary, that's often like a bad radio station that reminds us of the bad the bad advice from our parents and our school teachers and our elder brothers, sisters, or priests. You know, we have to sort of recognize that for what it is, which is just the the superego, really, which is like a condom over your ego structure that's always trying to reify the ego back to what's familiar and to see that compassionately so that we can, you know, say no to that, but with compassion. We need humility. We really need humility, especially in this day and age where there's such a lack of humility in our culture. And that humility helps to resolve the ego problem of pride. And we often don't see that our pride, our arrogance can be subtle, you know, and that any time we think, oh, I know, or I should know, or that we don't have a friendly relationship with the unknown, there's an arrogance there. Back to how you said uh, earlier about the compassion for our limitations of what we don't know. Right, right exactly. To having that humility in the face of, of being able to Google anything. I can't necessarily, I can't have an experience that I have not yet had. That's right, exactly. And so the humility helps us to really befriend the mystery and helps us to have that attitude. You know, when humility really comes online, we feel reverent. We feel as if we're bowing, not as some sort of gesture, appropriated gesture of prostration, but there's that attitude of humility in the face of the mystery itself that really helps us to open into the state of grace, that brings us into the receptive state freshly. I'm we curious also... about the humility in terms of, of age and time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about how humble, what kind of capacity for humility I would have had in my 20s versus right. what I have now. And if that, if you've seen that manifest or if you have, I mean, you were deep into your spiritual path in your 20s, but how did humility, has humility changed for you in your experience of it? Well, that's, do you have another few hours? <laughs> I know. I mean, there's I a lot to say here. And I've written about this a great deal in my new book, um, The Way of Grace. But humility. Yeah, speak to us about that too. Yeah. I, I, well, yeah, I will. But I want to just finish the arc I'm on first. Okay. Because, you know, this is about what you were asking about what it took to integrate. And what I started to see right. was we need humility and we need to develop more humility, which brings us into the reverence of being able to be with what we don't know, we don't understand without presuming and without turning that into a problem to really rest in the unknown. And we also need willingness to engage personal will and to recognize that the rightful use of personal will is to be in alignment with thy will. And often we think we're being in alignment with thy will, but if there's any control coming up, if there's resistance coming up, then there's an issue of will that's that's needing to be brought into deeper alignment. And so that's really what willingness is about. It's about helping us to relax ego control and to really get it that we're being lived and breathed by something we can't even really accurately put name to and that we would be much smarter to recognize that we're in the hands of grace always and our life will work better if we take that good advice of Lao Tzu where he said to ride the horse in the direction the horse is going. And then lastly, we need patience. We need patience with ourselves, because even with sincere spiritual practice and willingness and trust and compassion, you know, there's a subtle pushing that can come in. There's a subtle bargaining. You know, for example, the, the, the question I hear the most from people who have a spiritual practice is, what, what am I doing wrong? Because I've been meditating, I've been praying, 
but I'm still not enlightened yet. I'm not in bliss yet. And that reveals a kind of an impatient, immature attitude. And I think that's a, a big issue today when in our culture we're so used to being able to go on Amazon, hit buy now, and have it delivered in a couple of days' time. And so we don't necessarily get that we we need to engage sincere practices. We need to develop these spiritual muscles of trust and love of the truth and curiosity and non-attack, humility, willingness, patience, but it's not up to us. It's not a mathematical formula. You know, and all that's of what this, you're saying, it not being up to us, back to your story and mm-hmm. and just the the feeling of, at least in my experience, of having had multiple different kinds of awakenings mm-hmm. and that 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 the way that that integrates and the way that that ultimately takes shape is not up to me. Exactly. It's, it's not up to right. us. And, and in the same way that, you know, so much of the most important things in life, like the moment that you're born, the moment of your death, who you fall in love with, you know, the children that you are blessed to, to be given to, to raise, you know, the tasks that life mysteriously asks of you that becomes your career or your service project, you know, really this is being driven by a grace beyond our wildest conception that ultimately is trying to bring us home. It does ask for our cooperation, though. And the more we cooperate with it, the more graceful our life becomes. And, you know, so I think that's so much of what it's about is to to not compare your journey with mine, but to really listen to what is it that the mystery of life is asking from you and to do your best to say yes and to stay close to that. Because if you do, then it's inevitable that awakenings will happen in the way that they're most needed for you, that the things that need to be seen and understood and melted you know, can get melted, and that as we don't resist so much, we see that there's so much grace and love and support to help us in that process, and how as the density of our own consciousness melts and returns to the fluid freedom of our origin, not only do we become more peaceful and happier and more loving and kinder and more mature, but, you know, that water spiritually hydrates others and the earth around us. And that's really the point, is that for more of the the beauty of who you really are and the goodness of who you really are, to flow deeper into our world, it surely needs more of us to be awake right now. I'm so grateful for your voice and the way that you have shared all of this. Uh, with me today and just the beautiful metaphor you use along with the clear pillars that you Mm -hmm. outline and the sharing of your personal experience and your courage to to follow that is just it just really um, heals me and gives me space for my own evolution Mm. thank you I'm so glad and I'm wondering um, if you were to offer something specific to women and girls on the spiritual path right now, what might that be? Well, the most important thing is to listen to yourself. You know, to listen to that intuitive knowing that usually is going to lead you in the right direction and to to recognize that most spiritual traditions, even those who are led now by women, have come through the masculine lens. And so that there's, I'm hoping that my contribution is a contribution towards a more more feminine voice for awakening that isn't gender specific, but that's really bringing forth the importance of love. The importance of deep inner listening, the innate wisdom that lives inside every one of us and that as we as as we recognize the truth of that it may or may not always be mirrored 
by the outside world. And that's because the grid that we're all living in, and even the spiritual grid of the traditions that have been handed down to us, are still coming from a masculine point of view a lot of the time. That's not wrong. It's just not the full picture. And so I think that there is an evolution of our understanding of even what awakening is, as well as there a contribution to our world of the deep feminine, that perhaps, dear listeners, you will be part of, because it's not going to come from one of us, it's going to come from many of us. And it's coming up from out of our bodies, because the feminine is about embodiment. And it's coming up out of the deep heart, because the human heart that contains the human soul, according to Sufis, is a she, whether we're in a masculine or a feminine body. And that is the receptive principle. And it's time for humanity to become more receptive to deeper truths that contain the answers we need collectively as well as personally. So I would say listen to yourself and cleave to the practices that help you to listen to yourself. And I love that you offered that listen and that might not be reflected no, in it the might structures not be. It, around it you. It wasn't for me. It has right. not been for me. Right. But and you are offering us a, a place of that reflection, which I greatly appreciate. Yes. Well, I hope that I'm one of a new stream of many spiritual teachers that will offer that reflection and that will, will say, look, you know, the fundamental substance of our nature is, is fluid and free, and that means it contains wisdom. It contains gnosis, direct knowledge. And listen, that direct knowledge can speak to you. It can guide you. And we can always discriminate from true inner wisdom and fanciful delusion because true inner wisdom will always produce peace, right? Will always be beneficent, not just for you, but for others. It will produce truth and beauty and peace for all. Delusion will, you know, cut someone out of one's heart. Or, and so once you start to discriminate, well, it's obvious. You know? That's a wonderful pointer. And uh, tell us now a, a little bit. I know you have two, uh, a book and an audio book that are mm -hmm. on the horizon. Get, let us yeah. know about that. I'm really, really excited to be giving birth to these two gems of, you know, wisdom this year. And the first one is a, a book, an audio book called Meditations on Boundless Love. It's uh, published by Sounds True. It's available now and on back order, and it will be coming on May the first. And even though the subject, the title is Meditations on Balance Love, it's not just recorded meditations. It's for a four CD set of really what I have to say on boundless love. It's an update to the book I wrote years ago called Boundless Love. But it's got very beautiful inquiries about how we can relax the blocks to the awareness of love's presence and come to know our nature as love's presence, how we can unwind the blocks the primary blocks to love and beautiful practices, meditations and inquiries that um, I really I really hope will be a great blessing to many listeners. So then the book that I've just finished writing and have been working on for years is called The Way of Grace, the subtitle The Transforming Power of Ego Relaxation. And so this is my seminal new book and it's a really substantial book that is really it represents the whole body of teachings that came forth in the 10 years after that awakening in Ramana's cave. And so I take the reader on a journey on the dimensions of grace, because there's so much more to grace than just a beautiful state that fills your heart. You know, I take readers on a journey of grace as the ground of our being, how to relax into grace, on um, how to receive the blessings of grace how to um, 
open to the transforming power of grace and how to live the embodiment of grace all through the practice of ego relaxation. So that's going to be available in October this year, published by Sounds True. So in the meantime, I've got lots of retreats and day-longs and things that I'm offering in New York City in June and in uh, Northern California in June as well and in October time when the book comes out, lots of other teachings and I really look forward to meeting people who might have found this little podcast useful would like to engage in a little bit more deeply. I am sure that there will be many of those, and I would love to speak with you um, further and more. We There's so, so much beautiful wisdom and great pointers and directions uh, that you shared just in this hour with me here. And so maybe we can speak again uh, uh, once, your, once your book comes out and we can, yeah. we can speak uh, further and more, and more in depth. I'd love that. There's so many more wonderful subjects we could go much deeper into. Absolutely. I also also want to say for the listeners, um, I really encourage them to go to my website, which is Miranda McPherson, um, M-I-R-A-N-D-A-M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N.com. Here's why. Uh, Not only there are lots of articles and things, but in the heart of my website, there's something that they'll find called The Sanctuary. And the sanctuary is a virtual sanctuary with countless downloadable meditations, audio teachings, some video teachings, and so many resources that I've recorded um, to really support sincere aspirants on the path to, you know, to, to get the benefit and to have support and tools to walk the path with depth and substance. Yes, she does have a very beautiful website, and you can also find... Links to all that on the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com. We'll have links to purchase Miranda's books and to her website. And I do recommend, it's a beautiful website filled with resources and more and more of the wisdom that she shared with all of us here today. And Miranda, I really, truly thank you so deeply for your time and for all of the, of your work and your You're offerings. welcome. It's been great to be with you, Melanie. Blessings and love to you. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.